Welcome to Talking Technology with Atlas, the show that plugs you into the important topics and trends for technology leaders, all through a unique independent school lens. We'll hear stories from technology directors and other special guests from the independent school community and provide you with focused learning and deep dive topics. And now, please welcome your host, Christina Llewellyn. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. This is Talking Technology with Atlas. I'm Christina Llewellyn, the Executive Director of Atlas. And I am Bill Stites, the Director of Technology at Montclair Kimberly Academy. Bill, it's just you and me today. We're missing Hiram. I know. I'm somewhat heartbroken by that fact. I love spending time with you. I'm going to love spending time with our guest, but it hurts a little, you know, so I'm going to try to get through it. You know, he's a busy guy. Like, he's in high demand, and it's always a little bit of a miracle when we try to pull together the scheduling. <laughs> Indeed. So that we can all be in one place at one time to have a conversation. It's always Hiram. Like, there's one in every crowd, and it's Hiram. That dude's got a busy calendar. I 100% agree. It's always, let's blame everything on Hiram when he's not here. I'm all for that. I also think that we need to assign him some stuff, right? Like if you miss a meeting, <laughs> don't you end up with like, you get voluntold a few things? 100%. Before the end of this, what we should do is in the show notes for this podcast, <laughs> we should come up with at least a few deliverables that go to Hiram so that when he listens to this episode, he's going to get his assignments. As we keep that in the back of our minds, let's turn to our guest today. I'm really excited about having this guest because I just think that there's a unique mind that we get to explore today, and that is of Mr. Mike Cobb. Mike, hello, and welcome to the podcast. Hello. It's good to see both of you and excited to be here today and talk technology, talk learning with both of you. Yeah. So tell us, first of all, for our listeners, where are you? For me, I'm sitting here a few minutes after 10 a.m. on the East Coast. So also, when are you? <laughs> what time zone are you in? <laughs> yes, I am 5 p.m. in Saudi Arabia in the Tabuk region. That is the far northwest corner of Saudi Arabia near the Gulf of Aqaba, close to Jordan. I'm here uh, as part of the NEOM project and have been here for almost a year and a half now. So we're going to get into a little bit of your origin story because you have a long history in independent schools. But I think a lot of folks may not understand what NEOM is. So can you tell us a little bit about why you're in the Middle East and why you are at this place called NEOM? What is it? Yeah, it's a great story. NEOM is the most futuristic project probably ever endeavored. It's looking at how we not only live within our spaces, but how we live together. It is comprised of really four main projects. The line that many people have heard about, a 100-mile linear city that will allow us to reimagine how we live, where we live, and then what it looks like to be in a sustainable place. We also have Trojana, the mountain city that is going to be the host of the 2030 Asian Olympic Games. We also have Sandala, which is the um, island city. And then we have Oxagon, the largest port in the world once it's totally complete. So these are just for the projects that are the giga projects that are launched right now. There are many more involved. I'm in Neom because I have always dreamed about what the future of education should look like. Always hoped that we could really try to think about what it will be, not trying to think about what it should be right now. I feel like every time I talk about the future of learning with people, we still get stuck into what we're doing right now rather than what it will be in the future. And so this project was the opportunity to do just that. I mean, we are iterating very rapidly here. We already have three campuses that we are running. We have three more that we're going to be opening next school year. 
And down the road, we'll have 4,000 schools in the NEOM ecosystem. So it's a big project that is, to me, the most audacious dream I've ever seen. And I like to be an audacious dreamer, so I couldn't resist. I mean, you certainly are, and we'll get into some of that. But tell me a little bit about your living. Tell us more about the community part of it. Because you're there, and I think that you're there with your wife. That's right. And you guys have like a small footprint living quarters. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I find that really fascinating. Yeah, you know, one of the favorite things for me about being part of this whole project is that it is a job that we're doing to create something new, but we're also, we're, we're living it as we go about it. There are about 5,000 full-time employees here in Neom Community One, where I live. We have about another 60,000 employees that are part of the construction teams that are all over this region working. So, I mean, we have upwards to 70,000 people living here now. So I can tell you that Neom is real when people ask. I'm here every day. You can assure us, right? It's not living in a computer. It's not artificial intelligence. Yes, it's true. I'm here. <laughs> this is real. And, you know, one of the things that is cool is that we have all come here because of the passion for this project. And we live in beautiful homes, but they're small homes. I'm from Texas. Y'all might know that we're proud of things being bigger in Texas. Well, my house is about the size of my kitchen in Texas. It's small, has one living area, has a kitchen, has a bedroom and a bathroom. And the thing I love most about that, though, is that everyone in Neom has that same footprint, even our CEO to everyone in between has the same house. And it's beautiful to me that we we don't have any of those things that exist in most other societies that, you know, you, you know where you are, who you are based on what the size of your house is or things like that. But that doesn't exist here in Neom. And then, you know, I also say that it is a bit of a minimalist lifestyle and the sense of we are in the middle of nowhere. We have everything we need, but not everything we want. And that's something that I wanted to try in my life because I felt like I was probably becoming more materialistic than I wanted to be in my life. And I thought this is an opportunity for me to actually learn that lesson for myself. And so I love what Neom has provided for me in my career, but also for me personally. That's really fascinating. So it takes, I think, a certain kind of personality to be brave and experimental. But I think this is sort of wired in you, right? Like, so let's now take a few steps back. Tell us about your more traditional independent school path. And then I think my follow-up is going to be about how you brought innovation into those spaces. But tell everybody a little bit about the Mike Cobb origin story. You know, my story is actually very traditional in some ways, but I think you mentioned it often and we've talked before that none of our paths are a straight line. I I love the fact that we sometimes cheat people when we tell our story because we want to do it fast, but it's all over. I served 10 years in the Navy. I didn't know if I wanted to be a teacher. Those first probably five years I was in the classroom, I was looking at the want ads every day thinking, surely there's got to be something different than this because it wasn't easy always. But I was given the opportunity to work at two great schools before Neom. And that's really my career. For 34 years almost, I have worked primarily at three schools. So I worked at the Oak Ridge School in Arlington, Texas, and I was blessed to have such an amazing team with a vision for what we were trying to do. I had amazing colleagues like Jason Kern, who is an Atlas board member. And we were able to really not only do good work, but to grow up as school leaders and to grow up as thought leaders. And I'm very proud of that time together. We did a lot of good stuff at Oak Ridge. And then I decided to move to All Saints in 2016 in Tyler, Texas, just east of Dallas. There, I stayed for seven years and we did a lot of innovative programs there. And it was a school that when I came in was a 
very traditional Episcopal school in a small suburban town, but they were thinking about what the future could look like. And they gave me enough rope to do some really great things with our team. And uh, we created some amazing innovative spaces and several ideas about how you not only use space, but how you then can have more impact through that powerful usage. What did you teach? Where did you start in that classroom that you your reticent teaching? What was that? The funny story is that I did come into independent schools very reluctantly. I just finished my master's in history at the University of North Texas, and I was planning to go through my PhD track. I was working on that, had already started my courses, and it wasn't always easy. I had a neighbor who her daughter went to the Oak Ridge School. Every day we would talk, and as I would come home some days and not really sure about what I was still doing, she's like, you need to go interview at that school. They would be great for you, and you would love it. And so finally, one day, I I reluctantly gave in. And I still remember that when I was interviewed by Mr. Broadus, who's one of my mentors in life, he gave me the contract. And I, as any 25-year-old that has confidence he shouldn't have, says, I said, well, Mr. Broadus, I'll only be here for two years. I'm going to just do this and go back and get my PhD. 20 years later, we retired the same year together. (laughs) We left Oak Ridge the same year together. But no, I taught government and history. Those were my two passions. I did everything in between. I joke often that Mr. Broadus He is my greatest mentor, but he was not easy on me. He was the Mr. Miyagi. He had me doing everything that you can imagine in a school. Most of the time, I had no idea why I was doing it, but I learned so much about school that I feel like as I am a head of school that I can talk to most corners of the school. I may not know everything, but I, oh yeah, I've run summer programs. Oh yeah, I've done actually the publication. Oh yeah, I've been in charge of admissions. So I'm grateful for that experience. You know, it's funny, I laugh because I remember when I started, I told them, you've got me for the year, and then I'm going to be looking elsewhere. (laughs) And 30 years later, I'm still here, so I laugh about that. That's great. You guys, I mean, I just have to jump in as the woman on this conversation. That is a very guy thing, I think. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think any woman's like, let me just lay down the law here, y'all. So just watch your privilege on all that. (laughs) Different time. Privilege or just unknowing, obnoxious, 20-something-year-old guy, I'm sure that played a lot into it. Yes, exactly. All good. So, Mike, one of the things, you know, looking at all you've done, and I'm, I'm just very intrigued by just the breadth of things that you've been able to do over the course of your career, but you talked about those innovative spaces. And when, you know, looking back at all that you've done and all the different ways in which you've impacted space at the different places you've been at, I'm really curious because we here at MKA are going through a process now where we're looking at re-envisioning some of our spaces at our upper school in particular. And I'm curious as to what what has your approach been, given all the different things that you've done, what has your approach been to tackling questions about space, how they fit, how they meet program in the schools in which you've worked and in what the work that you're doing right now? Because I can imagine, you know, how we're planning spaces, how we're thinking about spaces in what you're doing right now is really up there on top of what you're doing on a daily basis. Yeah, it's exciting. Well, I have to tell a quick story to lean into why I got so passionate about spaces. It happened in around 2007. I was the middle school head at Oak Ridge, and I was really doing a lot of work with our teachers, thinking about how active learning looked and looking at how we use technology in the classroom. This goes back to the early days of QR code, so I'll uh, (laughs) let everybody remember that. We're using them more now than ever, but we were so excited to use QR codes in the classroom, right? And so I had this group of students that ran down to my office and they were so excited. I mean, it was loud coming down the hall and they were 
encouraging me to come to their classroom and see what was going on. As I got to the classroom, we had the students there on the floor in between the rows of desks with their iPads and QR codes doing this work. And they were so ecstatic about it. But all I could see was that we had created this space that was literally trapping the kids and preventing them from really being fully engaged as they should have been in that moment. And I literally had an epiphany that day, like, I am going to change this. Like, we're going to reimagine our spaces. And it was around the same time that The Third Teacher came out. That was a wonderful book that was, again, the right read at the right time for me. And I have now centered so much of my thought around Malaguzzi's ideas about the three teachers, about how we have to make sure that, yes, we bring in the best adult that we can for the learning process to be a guide. We also have to have the best co-learners, but that third teacher is essential. And so we started doing it at Oak Ridge, and we did some several cool spaces there with a learning commons, a learning garden, and some other things. But when I got to All Saints, it was a gift for me that I just began to walk around every space on the weekends, and I would just start giving I give ratings to each of the spaces. So I go from zero to you maybe doing harm to children in this space to 10 being this is the most effective third teacher I could ever interview or hire. And what we found is that we had area all over campus that we could do better with. And so it gave us the palette for us to say, well, let's start. And so we just picked off what are those low hanging fruit for us where we could go into a space that is not being utilized well we have a need for something else. How can we make that better? So that's how we began with the collaboratory, the Center for Innovation, the Outdoor Learning Center. So many of the spaces were really the result of us looking at what those spaces weren't doing rather than what we necessarily you know, had on a list of things to do, right? So to me, the third teacher, though, is primary in every school. I always have challenged people, if you think you don't have wasted space, Go about it this way. Walk around and really give a rating to each one of your spaces and think about it. And then also on most of our campuses, we have so many areas that are dedicated to adults. I know Christina knows this story, but at All Saints, one of the first things we did is we got rid of our boardroom. When I walked around and I looked at our boardroom, beautiful old traditional boardroom with cherry wood all around it. It was being used maybe once a month for a board meeting and then a couple of times for other administrative meetings. And I said, well, this does not have impact for students. We should think more about this. And it ended up becoming our fab lab, one of our coolest spaces on campus. And I was always so proud that it went from the boardroom to the fabrication lab. And it had such an impact for our learning. That's really incredible. You know, the discussion around the third teacher, interestingly, our beloved, now retired professional development director, Susan Davis, also loves that concept. Yes. And she took it a step further in a blog, and she's been talking about this toward the end of her career, and she got more reflective, and she looked at her trajectory as a whole, her complete career journey. She actually kind of likes the idea that there's now a fourth teacher, and that the fourth teacher is technology. Yes. And that technology plays now just as vital a role as what you're talking about with the space. What's your thought on that? Or what's your uh, reaction to that concept? Well, first of all, I would never argue against Susan Davis ever. I know better than that. So never. Oh my gosh, brother, me too. (laughs) I mean, she was the gift that I received walking into this role and we miss her every day. She's amazing. She has well earned this retirement, but there were a couple hundred tears. 
No doubt. I mean, much of my thought were shaped from conversations with Susan and other thought leaders that I have in my life. So I absolutely think what she has said and her thought process there makes sense for us. I mean, there are so many elements to what we do in a classroom. You know, I think it's all coming down to what are those most impactful areas for us? And again, depending on your school, depending on your vision, depending on your goal, those could all be in a different order even, right? But I definitely think technology plays an important role. I love the quote that though technology should be essential for learning, but it should be invisible to those that walk in. I still love that concept though, that even when we were designing the collaboratory and things, they were very high tech areas. But if you walked in, you saw a forest, you didn't see the technology, but man, it was very high tech. And so I think technology should be that very invisible teacher in the classroom. Yeah, Chris Lerman out of Philadelphia, he would say that it should be ubiquitous. It should be like air. And that was something that when I started going down to Science Leadership Academy for their workshops, that was the one thing that stuck with me. And it's something I've used time and time again. I think it's a great concept. Powerful, yes. Yeah. So I think that leads us really well into kind of the meat of why I wanted to invite you on to the podcast is if I could invite you to step up on the soapbox for a minute Can you share your thoughts about the future of learning? Can you just dump some of that Mike Cobb brain out for all of us to kind of percolate on? Because I think that you are moving at a million miles an hour, and I think you really do think of education and teaching and learning differently. So the soapbox and the mic are yours, my friend. Please go. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. I've been waiting for this moment my whole life. So here we go. (laughs) (laughs) You know, what's really interesting to me is that I am in such a unique position now working here at Neom that we are thinking so far ahead. And we honestly are thinking in so many really interesting pathways that I never thought I'd be as far along this thought process as I am right now. And before I lean into what I think the future of learning looks like, I would say what I have also learned being here, though, is that even in this very futuristic place where I live and we're doing things with incredible things with AI and education, we're doing great things with biometric feedback, VR, AR, data analysis, we're doing all these things. And the one thing that I have learned that I I didn't think I would learn is that there are still so many things about relationships and things that how you do things, about how you structure. You know, I'm a big agile person. I love the idea of how we go through things with a non-watershed method. All those things are so important. So we can layer technology on, we can layer these new advances on, but if we don't do it in a way that's still thoughtful, that is still keeping our goals in mind, then I worry that all this technology won't transform education. Because let's be honest that we have had a lot of technology innovations that have come in the last 100 years and our learning has not changed as much as technology. Right. I mean, we went from a chalkboard to a whiteboard to now a touchable display. All right. That's just substitution. We haven't changed and reimagined so much what we're doing, but we have the opportunity to do that now through AI and how we can use that within not only the learning, but with the teaching as well. It's one of the things I'm very passionate about looking at how we can help teachers analyze data more rapidly. And I'm not talking about just the feedback loop, but like we're using things where we're doing biometric feedback, where we can see students' attention in class. We can look at things there, even as down as far as their temperature and heart rates, right? So what happens if, though, a teacher can know that, you know, Mike was really excited for several points of the day, but there were times in the day when you were talking about this or that, that Mike was not engaged at all based on the biometric feedback. 
you can take a teacher who may not have those natural instincts to understand engagement as well. They haven't been around as long or they don't know. And you can have AI help them understand that more. So that's just like one example where if we do it right, we could do something really powerful. Obviously, with things like VR and AR, they could be transformative technologies for us, not only in allowing students to go different places or to see different things, but also to be social with people they can't be social with in that same way. So those are some of the things that I'm really excited about and that I believe that if we keep looking down the road, not just down at our feet now, but down the road, like what will this really look like? What are those skills and the competencies that students need in the future? Then we will do better with our integration of technology and how we do future forward learning. Mike, I want to follow up on something that you said, because first off, I think you're in a really unique position because I can't tell you how many times I've gotten together with colleagues and we said, you know, if we were starting a school, what would we do? How would we do it? Mm -hmm. And you're in that spot. I mean, it's an envious position to be in because you can really start thinking about these ways in which you really want to affect positive change in the way in which we're running schools and doing things. One of the points that you mentioned that I'd like you to kind of expand on a little bit, because I don't think necessarily maybe our audience knows about Agile or working in that framework with a Scrum framework. You mentioned, you know, a non-waterfall type environment. I had the good fortune about a year ago through Teachers College, they brought their heads, they had a heads institute that they were running. They brought it to MKA because of a connection we have with the institute. All these heads were there and we were able to work with a guy by the name of Mike Palandino who teaches at Villanova, works at Bristol-Myers School, he does a lot of stuff around Agile. And we got into Agile and it was something I had heard about through like software design and the way in which, you know, you move through things and you iterate through things. But it was never something that we talked about within the context of schools. And what I learned in that day, and we, we spent the day building with Legos, but we spent the day really learning about it and trying to take those concepts and apply them to what we need to do to school to be more iterative, to be able to kind of try different things and work through different problems and see where you are and have those touchbacks. Can you explain to everyone how you see Agile? impacting the way in which we look at what we do in schools and the way in which we can use that to envision and enact the changes that you're doing right now on a day-to-day basis. I am passionate about the idea of Agile. I use the method called Scrum, which was developed by Jeff Sutherland. It's just one variety. There are many of this idea of being Agile and how to have an Agile process. It started, interesting enough with me, when I was at All Saints in my first year, and we had all of these ideas, all these things that were going on, and we had actually started several programs. We were quite ambitious. And as I was one day looking through some books, I got the book and I began to read it. And as I began to read it, I had just this clarity that in my past, the projects that I had led and had been a part of that were successful, we had inadvertently been using some agile processes. We had decided how we would chunk it, how we would divide time and, and go through. And then the, the ones that had not been successful, we were doing the watershed method. We had decided to do it very old school. And so it was like this moment for me, like, wow, if we're going to continue at the pace we're going at now, we have to think differently. So the first thing I did was I bought a copy of Scrum for every member of our administrative team and for our teachers. And I told our administrative team, I said, you need to read this because this is how we're going to be approaching work in the future. And I told our teachers, I just want you to think about it now. Don't worry. This is how our kids will lead. But it led us down a three-year process where we began to incorporate Scrum and Agile into every element of our school. 
I mean, that's pretty foreign for teachers. Yes. Did you have a revolt on your hands? They thought you were crazy. That's why I said, um, I gave it to them in December as a Christmas gift. And I said, I just want you to read this. That is not a good Christmas gift, dude. (laughs) (laughs) It's the gift of agility. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) I'm sure they were scratching their heads a little bit. Exactly. But the idea is, though, that once they read it, and there was no expectation for the teachers, there was for the administrative team. But then what they saw is they saw actually our administrative team being more effective. And I had many comments from the teachers about, I feel like the work we're doing is more meaningful now. I feel like things are going forward in a more rapid pace. And so it was so powerful. But then we stretched it to go into our classrooms. And so all of our teachers end up getting scrum training. We had numerous scrum masters across the campus, and we had students that were scrum masters. And I really do believe, as y'all know, one of our passions at All Saints was A3 learning. It's still my passion, but it's centered around the idea of authentic learning, agency, and then these agile frameworks. I think a lot of people understand authentic learning. They understand agency and how that really uh, can impact learning, but they sometimes miss on the agile And I say that really the agile is the fuel for the first two, that when students are doing authentic work, if they don't know how to be good project managers, they don't know how to lead through to completion, to actually delivery, they get frustrated and they don't want to do it anymore. That was fun, but I don't want to do it anymore. Then also when you give agency, if they don't have a way to actually use that empowerment, then to actually, again, get people around it to help them get to the fruition of that idea, then they get really frustrated. So Agile, to me, is the landing strip for authentic and agency. I love that because I think that in today's workplace, there's so much project management expertise and skills. And that's where you see, especially sometimes, the less seasoned professionals struggling. They're great at their vertical. They're wonderful at their subject matter expertise. But goodness, can they figure out how to prioritize? That's right. Can they figure out how to get down the path of what is always going to be more work than can get done? Absolutely. Yes. So it's really interesting how you snuck in that nutrition. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, you put vegetables in a muffin. There you go. (laughs) By having students getting good at that. Yes. What I think is interesting there is also the time that you have to do it. You've got to set time where you have to complete something and you have to come together and you have to be able to share. And then you know that you're going to have that opportunity to go back and rework what it was that you've done. So it's almost getting past this point. We talk a lot about how do we teach people to be better about accepting a failure. And I don't think it's necessarily failure, but it's the idea that it's not going to be perfect. But we have to come together, we have to talk about it, we have to share on it, we have to discuss it, and then we can look at it, and then we can iterate and move beyond and then improve upon it as you go through. And I think it's, yes, for me, it was that process approach that I think was very interesting because I know I even struggle with this myself now where it's like I'm not willing to give up something because I don't think it is as good as it could be, but it often delays even getting anything out. And I think that's one of the really big things about that process that I think is really good to kind of embrace and take in. I love that. A couple of things that I have really always emphasized with our team as we're leading and especially using agile is that you can't get caught up on perfect. First of all, I love the Pareto rule that talks about that. If you can do a job or defer a job to 80% and then you can take on something else, 
then you should do that. And it's a really hard one for us, especially as school leaders, to give up. And of course, you have to pick and choose which things you'll let drop to 80%. But, you know, at All Saints, for example, we ended up, we could have done maybe five projects at 100%, but we ended up doing 31 construction projects in my time there. And I think most of them were probably higher than 80%. But if that was okay, still, if it was 80%, we did 31 projects, right? And so I think that that's so important to think about that we have to in this world that we live in now. I talk a lot about VUCA, you know, the volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous problems that we have now. You can't aim for perfection with the uncertainty we have today because you won't reach it likely. And if you do, I believe it's usually on accident. So I know I'm a bit of a gunslinger in that way, though, that I say we only have so much time with the children that are under our care. I don't want to wait and have a child miss out on one tenth, one twelfth, two twelfths, or whatever of their education because we need to go through two more committees to make sure that we get this to perfection. If we get it to 80%, we know we can have impact, then we should go. We should have a bias to action. I love that. I want to go back to a leadership lesson that I feel like I learned fairly young in my career, and that is that sometimes you need to surround yourself with people who are different than you are. And Mike, you and I have gotten to know each other through a networking event that you put together with some thought leaders in the independent school space. So I know a bit about you. And you just said you run fast and you make sure that you're getting things out the door and you have kind of that action-oriented personality. I feel like I'm kind of like that too. But what I've learned is that it's important to have people around us that sometimes slow down and make sure they attend to the details. And so you mentioned Jason Kern. Yes. He is that guy, right? Yes. Because you work together. He was on your leadership team at All Saints. He will probably hate us for talking about (laughs) him on this pod. But he's now on Atlas's board of directors. He is also our finance committee chair. And he's that guy. He now works with Mission and Data. And he is like an operations savant. Like he makes sure he's attending to the details. And so he seems like the kind of person that you would want on your team, especially given how you are. And I have some of those on my team. Yes. Especially given how I am. So tell me a little bit about that. And is that something that you've always done? Is it something that you learn to do over time? How do you pick the people you surround yourself with? I totally believe it's so important to think about what your team brings. I've done everything from the Enneagram to Strength Finders to everything in between with my teams over the years to really be deeply considerate to what we all bring to the table. Jason, though, is, of course, an incredible part of my journey. Uh, We worked for 20 years together at Oak Ridge and then seven years together at All Saints. Honestly, we agree on a lot of things, but we disagree on as many (laughs) as we agree on, though, because he is so thoughtful. I'm going to say same. Yeah, (laughs) yes. And that was what was really so magic for us is that we had such a respect for each other. I truly respect that he is one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. And he is very, very methodical about the way he goes about thinking through things. I could give a thousand examples of that when I'm ready to go and just say, okay, I got it. This is what we want to do. He's like, let me ask a few clarifying questions. <laughs> oh, Jason, come on, come on, come on. And then here we go. And then I'm like, oh, that was, that was good. Oh, I know that. I feel that so hard. <laughs> yes, right? But it is so important to have people around because what that did for me as a leader is it gave me the comfort that I didn't have to worry. I could be my true self. Because I knew that I had Jason that was there to be that best side of, hey, let's think about it one more way. Let's slow down. Let's go through a process so I could be myself. 
So that's a gift. And I, I had the great fortune to have several people that played different roles on the teams that I was on at All Saints, at Oak Ridge, and here at Neom that play those roles for us. So I think it's important. Don't get in your echo chamber. It's nice to have people that think just the way you do, but you'll miss steps if you live there. And how do you feel about technology? Let's bring it back to that for a second, because tech teams at independent schools come in a lot of shapes and sizes. So when you were ahead in any kind of leadership position, how do you think about tech? Is it everywhere and it's decentralized? Is it important to have a person or a team really focused on making it as efficient and invisible as possible? What are your philosophies when it comes to a tech team at an independent school? Now, I will say that obviously it's changed over time what I've thought about it. I've been in education for 34 years. So I still remember when I had the first computer in my classroom that I had to buy myself and I had to allow the school to lease it from me for a dollar a year. Wait, do you remember what that computer was? It was a 386. Nice. Yeah, I still remember it very well, <laughs> the floppy disk. And I remember having someone tell me at that time that there's never going to be a time where you need a computer in the classroom. So I come from that point to where we have so much integration and we have not one-to-one. I mean, one-to-one, when we started that at Oak Ridge, seems so futuristic. Now we have three, four-to-one, right? So for me, technology, though, plays such an important part of our schools because it is life. My hope, though, is that we don't use technology as a lingo around the school, because if we're trying to integrate technology, then we forget what we're really trying to do is we're trying to make sure our kids are life ready, right? So whatever those technologies are should be what they're using in life. I often say that in the past, we've always had students try to, we want them to learn something, then we want them to love it, then we want them to live it. And I say, no, no, let's go backwards. Let's have them see what they live. Let's see what they love. And then let's learn deeper into that. That's how authentic learning can actually happen. Interesting. Jason helped shape my thought on this a lot. We moved away from having technology even in our title. Jason's title was he was the assistant head of school for innovation and modern learning. And we like that. That to me, when you talk about modern learning and innovation, certainly technology plays a role in that. But it's not about the technology. It's about the things that it can provide for us. One of the things we've been talking a lot about with regards to all this has been artificial intelligence, AI. And and while it's been here in pieces, it's really picking up and we're dealing with it in ways we would have only thought of in science fiction movies, you know, a few years ago when, when you look back. But how are you seeing AI play out now in the work that you're doing there and in the future of technology as a whole? I am very uh, excited about AI. Again, here I am always living on the edge, but I have been around long enough too to remember when Google and Wikipedia first started, how we all threw our hands in the air and thought the craft of teaching must be over now. And I know it's not. And that what I believe AI can do, if we use it properly, that's always the technology is only as good as what we as humans do with it. If we use AI appropriately and effectively, we can make learning deeper, we can make learning more impactful, and we can make learning more efficient. If we misuse it, just like anything else in our schools, then it will not be as good. And so I am excited about what AI is doing. We're using it, as I mentioned, in several ways. One, to help students just with their daily workflow. They're going to be using AI in the future. So we allow them to use AI in the classroom. We teach them how to do it responsibly. But there are many tasks that AI can and should do for our students that isn't part of our pedagogical 
process for them. So yeah, if it can do that for you, there are certain things that we have the agreement with them. The covenant is that, no, this is part of what you are doing here though. So don't use it for that, please. But also for our teachers, it is saving our teachers so much time in so many areas. And when we look at grading, the feedback loop, and even giving information back to parents, if we can save time, that gives us more time for the relational things that do have such an importance and the outcomes for students. And Mike, one of the things I I love about what you said is your answer is not unlike what we've heard when any new technology has come out. And I think in asking that question, it's almost like leading. I want to know what I want to know that you're in agreement with what we've been hearing, because so much of the conversation around AI seems like it's like, how do we address this new thing? It's unlike anything else. It's not really unlike any other type of transformative technology that we've had to deal with that we didn't have before. And it's just great to get that perspective from you and hear where how you're tackling it with the work that you're doing there. Because again, you're in a position now where you've got almost like unlimited freedom in terms of shaping the way in which you are building this program and what you're doing there at Neom. So one of the questions that I have is, you mentioned earlier that whenever you talk about the future of technology, you get caught in the present. Well, you're you're looking very much to the future. Yes. And with everything that you've had in your past, everything that is going on now, if I were to take the trip, you know, and I'm not inviting myself, but if you wanted to bring me over, I'd be happy to go. I'd love it. If I was making the trip and I was going to walk in to one of these schools, either that you've already have opened or that you're opening what would I see? What would it be like? What would I experience in that since you've got this kind of open opportunity to develop things the way in which you you want? Well, first of all, we have developed really the idea about what our learning should look like around some core principles. And so the very first core principle, though, is personalized learning. I know that doesn't sound new and innovative, but here's the thing that we have missed for so long with much of our technologies We've just been trying to make the horses run faster and not build cars. And with personalized learning, though, we can actually do these personalized pathways where kids can have authentic experiences and go down very unique avenues. And so we're really trying to use not only, again, our technology, but also our pedagogical approach to allow more opportunity for that. Not only through how we use technology by maybe it is that they can do AR or VR classes or things like that, but also we're allowing students time um, in their day. So we have really revolutionized the way our schedule looks so that students have discovery blocks within their week so they can actually take deep dives. This is something that we started at All Saints, but we've gone a lot farther in my current role now to make sure that we allow time, space, and support for true personalized learning to happen. And I do believe this is what the future of education looks like. When you think about the access, because AI, as an example, AI has been around for decades. AI is not new. And for people who think it's new, they just haven't been paying attention. Here's what's new is that now we all have access to it. It used to be that only major corporations and those who had lots of funds behind them had access to this type of generative AI. We now have it as individuals. So as we look down the future of learning, we have to know that access is going to increase, not just with AI, but the next thing and the next thing. And so we want to build our schools in a way that they're flexible enough to allow students to still get the things that we need them to know, to learn, and the skills, but also to have their own journey. We've said it for decades that we're preparing kids for jobs we don't know about yet. This is even more so right now that, I mean, I'm here in Neom where I'm looking at people who are running entire sectors that were things I didn't even know about till I came here, right? I mean, like 
this is the future for us. So we need to be careful about thinking there's certain things that we have to have in and instead allow more time for personalizations. We also talk about embedded as one of our core principles that we want the competencies, the skills, the technology, and all that to be embedded in the learning. So it isn't just one off, so that it's, it's all together, allowing them to have the tools and the resources needed to take those personalized pathways. So as the kids would say, Mike, I'm loving this journey for you. I'm loving that you're taking us on this journey. But what is next for you? You've kind of walked this long path where you started in the classroom. You're now doing something that most people can't even really fully imagine, even though you've just described it to all of us. So what's next for you? Well, that's a great question. I have always tried to live my life just looking for opportunities and open doors. I hope that anyone who knows me would say that that's true of me, that I'm willing to have any conversation, to have any deep thought with anyone, because those tangent opportunities where I've found some of the coolest things in my personal life and in my career. Many times when I was at All Saints, there would be people I would meet in the community that would just want to learn more before I knew it. They had some opportunity that I didn't even think about at the beginning. If I had not left that door open, it would have happened. And certainly here in Neom, it happens all the time. With all of our sectors, we have the top minds in the world, and they're coming over, they're helping our students. And so I just like to have an open door. So my hope is that there'll be a lot of neat things coming in the future. I am coming to the probably the end of my career in some ways. I've been doing this for 34 years. So you know, I don't know how much longer I have to actually have the energy to be ahead of school and to do all those things, but we'll see. I certainly love what I do, and I'm not going out the door quite yet. It sounds like there's a few more sandboxes that you want to dig up. I mean, that's the vibe I'm getting. Absolutely. <laughs> so as we kind of start getting toward the end of our time together, I also know a little something about you, and that is that you have a hobby that if it isn't expensive in terms of your checkbook, it certainly is expensive in terms of the space that it takes up. Tell the Atlas world what your little passion project is that especially takes up a lot of room in your garage. My wife will not like us talking about this, but no, I'm just kidding. I am a car enthusiast and I have always loved cars. And over the years, I have taken it on that if there's a car that needs to be renovated or loved, I don't like to buy a car that's already been done or a car that's finished. Kind of how I am in life, I like to see potential on things. And so I buy cars and I try to do something new with it. I do renovate some of them, but I also turn like a I have a 79 Corvette that I turned into a B1 bomber look that I put rivets on that I 3D printed and painted like an Air Force plane. So a little bit of everything. I currently own 25 cars that are still back in the States waiting on me right now. And I do get to look at them every night on my little screen. I have a security camera and I, I put them to bed every night. So I do miss that very much. Well, Mike, if you have a Toyota FJ40 Cruiser that you either want to renovate or you have or you want to get rid of, I will take it. Okay, we need to talk. Yes, we do. At one point, I actually did one of those. I don't have it currently, but I'm always looking for a next project, Bill. <laughs> I had one in college and I got it too young and ended up getting rid of it. And I curse myself every day for doing it. Oh, uh, that's a bad rabbit hole to go down. All the cars I wish I still had for sure. <laughs> I think everybody has like a, an emotional reaction to a car. Mm -hmm. 
My dad owned for a long time, he owned a 1970 Boss 302 Mustang. Oh, yes. And even though I am highly proficient in driving a stick shift, he never did let me (laughs) anywhere near that clutch, as he would put it. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Well, you tuck your cars in every night. Yay, technology. Is there a dream car? So Bill mentioned his. I mentioned the one that my dad won't let me breathe on. What's your dream car that you're really hoping to get your hands on? Or do you already have it? Yeah, I was going to say, I probably have my dream car because I I have such an eclectic collection. When people come to see my shop, they're kind of puzzled, like, why? (laughs) Because each one of my cars have a story or have some sentimental value to me. But the car that is my dream car that I do own is a 1970 C10 truck that my daughter and I totally renovated from a barn find when she was about 12 years old. And we worked for four years, did everything on this together. And that was my dream. And that really is where my passion for renovating cars came from. I always loved cars, but I so enjoyed being with my daughter, watching this thing go from one state to the other and seeing her pride in this car. People ask me all the time, what's the one car you'll never sell? That's the one that I will never, ever sell. So I love my 1970 C10 truck. That's awesome. That's a really great answer. Mike, this has been such a pleasure, and I'm so grateful that you made the time, even with the time difference, to join us for the podcast to share a little bit about how you're thinking. I think that you have such an open mind to what is possible, so I know I feel inspired, and I'm sure our listeners will too. Thank you so much. I want you to feel like you have an open invitation to come back and join us anytime. When you're doing cool stuff, we want to hear about it first. Is that a deal? That's a deal. I would love it. And I I love staying in tune with what you're doing. And thank you for letting me be part of this network. I have loved Atlas from the very beginning. It was interesting. You know, Jason and I worked hand in hand. We really, I wasn't really necessarily the head of school and he wasn't the assistant head of school. It depended on the day and the task, (laughs) who was in charge. Right. But Jason always told me that, Mike, you have to be involved with Atlas. You have to go to the Atlas conference and events. And I was always there. And I remember in the early days, I was sometimes the very only head of school there. And I love now that we've seen the head of schools have realized that, no, they have to be engaged with this conversation and be involved with Atlas. And so I'm super proud to be on the podcast and to be part of this network. Okay, so now we were going to end this, but now you opened up a new door and you haven't been with me long enough to know there's always another question. (laughs) So let's go with that as our final question, which is, let's say there's a head of school who just doesn't feel comfortable with technology. Can you give him, her, them a little pep talk about why they have to get comfortable with technology? Yeah, well, what I'd really say to that is you have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable because that's the world we live in. So if you don't understand quite all the things that are available or the options out there, then going to a place like Atlas or being involved with a network like Atlas is the way to do that. I mean, I've learned so many things by Again, get to know Atlas members and going to Atlas workshops and conferences. That's where I became more comfortable with being uncomfortable. I still am uncomfortable all the time. Every day at Neom, there's something that somebody brings up that I'm like, I have no idea how that will work or if that's even possible, but I'm comfortable with the idea that we don't know yet, but we can still move forward. Mike Cobb, you are chef kiss. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) Thank you so much for your time, friend. I really appreciate it. Thank you both. Yeah, thanks, Mike. This has been great. Thanks, Bill. Appreciate it. Y'all have a great one. Thank you so much. This has been Talking Technology with Atlas, produced by the Association of Technology Leaders and Independent Schools. 
For more information about Atlas and Atlas membership, please visit theatlas.org. If you enjoyed this discussion, please subscribe, leave a review, and share this podcast with your colleagues in the independent school community. Thank you for listening.